The thing is, well, I wasn't able to. You know, I don't have the key for every lock. And I uh, see you as finding somebody that has the skill that I lacked here. Mm. Rather than, well, you didn't really want to change. You just wanted to come around, hang out with me and give me money. Hello, my love, and welcome to the Boldly Courageous podcast. My name is Melissa Martin. I am a business and embodiment coach and creator of the Boldly Courageous community. Just like you, I've walked through some dark seasons in life and I know what it's like to start over again and write a new story. This podcast is here to activate you, to show you what's possible when you embody your power and walk with courage and fear in the pursuit of what sets your soul on fire. Each week, you will hear authentic conversations with thought leaders and visionaries as we dive deep into topics such as spirituality, business, money, relationships, sexuality, and so much more so that you can fully embody your boldly courageous self. Are you ready? Let's drop in. Hey, real quick before we dive into the episode, I need to let you know about something really, really special to me. So if you're anything like me and you've had this calling on your heart to start a podcast, but you have no idea where to start, I want to introduce you to the incredible team that I have worked with literally from day one of launching Boldly Courageous over at Podcast Co. They have just released a self-paced course called Launch Your Fucking Podcast. This program will literally take you through step-by-step of launching your podcast from start to finish. You will learn everything about how to create and find the foundation and mission of your podcast, how to come up with the perfect name, get super clear on your audience and the structure of your show. Also, you will learn how to record, how to produce, how to edit, and also hosting, music, creating the perfect cover and building a successful launch strategy. Basically, by the end of the program, you will have launched a podcast that feels authentic and expansive to you, labeling you as the expert that is ready to impact and grow your audience in whatever phase of life they may be at. So all you have to do is go to the link in the show notes, use code boldly courageous at checkout, and you will get a hundred dollars off the launch your fucking podcast course. So now let's jump into the episode. back to the Boldly Courageous podcast. As always, it is such an honor that you are here with me today. And this is part one of a two-part episode that it's literally filled with so much good information that we had to split it up into two because I didn't want to stop having this conversation with my guest, Dr. John Connolly. And in this conversation and the following conversation, we talk a lot about mindset. And Dr. John Connolly is the founder and creator of something called Rapid Resolution Therapy. And how I could basically sum this up and what you're gonna receive from these two episodes is really understanding the nuances of conscious mind, subconscious mind, and grief. And how we as humans navigate through things like fear of public speaking, how we navigate through fear of abandonment and rejection, how we deal with the pain of losing someone, dealing with trauma, all of these things that are prevalent in almost every single person's life, 
that we choose to suffer in. And Dr. Connolly really presents a different alternative. So in modern day society, whether it's through coaching or it's through therapy, all these different modalities of therapy, we've pretty much adopted a two track mindset when it comes to pain. And regardless of what that pain is, whether it's a fear of something, grief, trauma, option one is deal with the fact that it's here. Just accept that you are depressed or accept that you have had this trauma or accept the fact that you are feeling grief and suffer in that acceptance. Option two is just ignore it and pretend that it's not there. And even though we do our best to numb out and deny and pretend that the thing is not there, it still impacts our life. And we can't deny the fact that it's here. And through these two conversations and the work that Dr. John Connolly does, you will learn that he believes that there is a third option and it is to get rid of it. So you don't have to accept being depressed. You don't have to accept having anxiety. You don't have to accept having had trauma or the experience and the pain that you're living in. You can actually clear it in a very quick and simplistic way so that you can get on with your life and live in joy and happiness and abundance. And I've had the opportunity to work with Dr. Connolly in a couple of different capacities, and I've been continually fascinated by his work. And I knew that I wanted to have him on the podcast. So this first episode, you will hear us talk all about the mindset reprogramming around fear and rejection and abandonment. And in the second episode, we dive more deeply into grief. Dr. John Connolly first founded the Institute for Survivors of Sexual Violence, which is a nonprofit 501c3 organization engaged in research and development of cutting edge treatment for survivors of trauma. His early career experiences as a child protective services worker and clinical supervisor in a program for traumatized teens helped shape the creation of rapid resolution therapy. RRT offers innovative training programs designed for people looking to relieve suffering. Doctors, dentists, mental health professionals, teachers, coaches, nutritionists, lawyers, caregivers, nurses, business owners, and so many more have become rapid resolution therapy members with the intention to learn and apply the fundamentals of RRT to themselves and their field. John Connolly is licensed as a clinical social worker and holds a doctorate in clinical pastoral counseling. He is the author of Life-Changing Conversations with Rapid Resolution Therapy, which demonstrates the power of a single session to resolve ongoing trauma and turmoil and dramatically improve well-being. And his new book, Grief is Not Sacred, is also now available for purchase. Both books can be bought on Amazon. Without any further ado, let's dive into my conversation with John. The man, the myth, the legend, Dr. John Connolly. It is such an honor to have you here on the Boldly Courageous podcast. And something that I deeply value and appreciate about you is your sense of humor. I've had the pleasure of being on several calls with you and noticed that if you're not really paying attention to the things that you say, you miss 
the fun and the play in it because you drop in these little like bombs of play and fun and humor and and it like breaks up something that sometimes feels like a little bit of a heavier conversation and i i appreciate it so much it's um well now you went made me freaking nervous <laughs> um I, i'm thinking oh i gotta be funny i gotta be funny i gotta be funny she'll be disappointed she won't like me mm, well maybe we can work through that together on this episode i i would like some help well with that being said <laughs> what is one boldly courageous thing you've done recently? Oh my goodness. I'm showing up with you. This feels like a boldly courageous move for you. It feels bold and uh, wonderful. I'm curious, is this a new chapter for you getting on more podcasts and becoming more what I would call front facing or public with the work that you're doing? Years ago, I had a, a radio show for a while and oh, Melissa, I really look good on the radio. So I, I played that as, as, I mean, super hot. You wouldn't control yourself. <laughs> Six pack abs, the whole thing. I understand that I might have the privilege of having this happen with people hearing rather than seeing me. So I'll step into that persona. That uh, radio show wasn't covering things I'm thinking about and doing now. But I had great fun um, being out there. And it was a show with we could have call-ins and stuff. So it was it, it was uh, it was really great. I've been doing um, training in this process that I've developed for uh, years now, and it, it continues to be developed. So what I'm doing really isn't uh, um, a whole, new chapter. Um, I, I think it's a better chapter. It's, it's richer and better, but showing up isn't really new. I'd love to give people a, a frame of reference on exactly what rapid resolution therapy is, because I have a lot of questions that I want to ask, but I think it will be important for our listeners to understand exactly what is rapid resolution therapy and what makes it so different than some of the other modalities that people hear about in the mainstream when it comes to therapy. Wow. How long do we have? As long um, as you want. <laughs> I mean, that's a kind of deep question. Let me see if I can um, come up with a with a headline answer instead of the the long version. What I'm looking to do and what I'm training people to do is to find a fast and enjoyable way to cause um, people's minds to be um, set up to maximize joyful and effective living. We look to make things better for the individual we're connecting with and the whole world simultaneously and um, look to have that take place fast, but fast and deep and complete. Which is kind of contrary to a lot of the things that we hear now is like, oh, you, the fastest way out is through and you have to be able to sit with your feelings and, you know, instead of ignoring them or stuffing them down. But what I'm hearing you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is it's not an, it's not a process of avoiding. It's a process of clearing without like sitting in it for months and months. Yeah. Or weeks and sitting weeks. in it 
is a been there and done that thing for me. When I got interested in what to do for people who had experienced what I thought of as trauma, I got started with experiencing what that's about really at the very beginning of my career. My first real job was as a child protective uh, service worker. That's a very good job to start with because after you get out of it, it feels like you're on vacation for the rest of your life. Um, but certainly exposed to all kinds of scary and 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 disturbing things there and went from that to um, uh, uh, providing clinical supervision at a residential program for runaway throwaway teens. So um, experienced with, with them just, I mean, most of them, although living on the street is not a good idea, it was a good idea compared to where they were before they did it. So then I, I was looking for how, how can I assist somebody who continues to be troubled by something that they've already gone through. And um, when I looked to learn that, the people who were teaching me said something that made sense to me. And what, what they said was, when somebody's going through a, a, a very disturbing event, like getting raped, during it, they're not thinking about how to be expressing their feelings. They're thinking about how to not be dead. So I was told that therefore the feelings that got generated by a horrible occurrence didn't get expressed or didn't get fully expressed and therefore didn't get released. And that people were troubled because of stuck feelings inside them. And I was taught to provide people with a, quote, uh, safe place where they would then be deeply feeling and um, fully experiencing and um, therefore releasing these feelings that that couldn't have been safely felt or expressed at the time. And um, I, it, it sounded reasonable to me. Uh, I mean, I don't know, it, it worked on me, I did it. And I, I didn't like doing it because I was sitting there really causing somebody to re-experience the worst moment of her life. Um, and, and I thought, well, I mean, somebody's got to do it, and and and, and I, I'm, it should be me. Um, and so I sat with it, and I did it. I didn't like it because it was so painful uh, for for folks, and and I was empathic then, uh, and so it was painful for. Uh, that person was was painful for me, not as much, but still deeply. And I wound my way away from it because I didn't think it was providing the benefit that I intended. Yeah. So this, I've had this experience as well. And my understanding through my own life and um, going through therapy is, is there's 
I, I kind of look at it in, in two buckets and maybe you can elaborate on this of like, there's talk therapy, right? Where you go in and you sit down with a shrink or a therapist and you're basically talking to them and they're asking questions or, you know, clarifying things. And you maybe have a thinking awareness and like in your mind, but so that's kind of like one one kind of therapy. And then the other is somatic therapy, which is less about the talking and more about the feeling. And actually, instead of having to talk about the problem over and over again, just going into the feeling of the problem and and making friends with it almost in your body. So in my personal experience, I was repeating a lot of patterns that would um, in relationships and then my body would shut down. And so I was having a somatic, a body experience that my mind couldn't understand. And through somatic therapy, I didn't have to talk about whatever it was, but I could, instead of numbing out and avoiding the feeling, I could be in the feeling and then learn how to move through it. And so that's been my kind of understanding of like the two different types of therapies. Like there's a talk therapy where you sit and talk to a therapist and then there's somatic therapy where you don't necessarily have to talk about it, but it's very emotional. You're doing a lot of breath work and movement and there's a lot of crying. It's kind of cathartic. And I would leave those sessions and I would be exhausted for days after, like, because I had all this like big emotional release. And so what you're saying is from a practitioner standpoint of being able to hold someone through their trauma, not only was it exhausting and and re-traumatizing for them, but also as a practitioner, it was really traumatizing for you as well. Well, either it was traumatizing or you didn't give a damn because <laughs> I mean you're inches away from somebody who's sobbing experiencing being raped. You know, one or the other, but but that that would have been well it wouldn't have been okay, but I would have kept doing it if if I thought that that was um an effective way to assist people and it's not that nobody got better i'm not sure whether they got better in spite of me now that i look back at it but um there 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 are you know all boy there there seem to be as many kinds of psychotherapies as they are religions and and they're similar in that way because okay well, we're all religious, but you're a Roman Catholic and you're a Muslim and you're a this and you're a that and you're a client-centered therapist and you're a somatic experiencing therapist and you're a cognitive behavior therapist and you're a gestalt therapist and you're an analyst. So there's tons of different flavors. And that was what I um, learned to do because I wanted to be able to assist people to deal with the kind of things that I was seeing people go through. Like, I mean, I I saw children who uh, were uh, neglected, abused, uh, all kinds of awful things were happening and were, were was intervening there. Uh, a difference now is when I was beginning my career, my understanding, and I think it was accurate, was my job is to is to affect the environment that this little person is in. I, I had no 
idea that I was supposed to sit with the child and 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 help him to be more adaptive. Um, so as I saw what to do there, either um, improve, well, first, it was an investigative to some degree. So it's first check, is there actual danger? Uh, then um, if so, either fix it or or get the child out of it. Those were hard and scary things to do straight out of college. I mean, I, I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing, Melissa. I had a degree in history. Thank goodness that my supervisor, because we taught to go to my supervisor for advice on things, and she at least had a more specialized degree. So you're you're in this experience, and you're witnessing these really difficult things for you personally to navigate. What what was the catalyst for you to stay in the field of psychotherapy and to eventually? I couldn't do anything else. You had no other option. <laughs> Nobody's offered me, uh, you know, any other kind of job. Um, I uh, I got out of college. And I had a yeah, I did have a degree in history, and I started looking in the want ads, and they didn't seem to be looking for any bachelor level historians. I called a friend and said, "What am I going to do? I'm I'm done with school, and I don't know how to do anything." I mean, everything in the job thing said you got to be able to do this or this or this or this, and the advice was, "Well, what did you do in school? Wrote papers and took tests. Did you do okay in the tests? Yeah, I did okay." Okay, take tests. And I went and took a bunch of civil service tests, and that's how I ended up in the adventure that I just described to you. Um, and, you know, I did really have um, an interest in making a difference for people, and that passion has, um, has, has continued. I just think I'm better at it now. Well, yeah, of course, repetition and and time and experience. That's that's one of no the throwing it all out and reinventing it, not repeating it and putting more time in, but just getting. Gosh, there's got to be a better way to do this. So, what were some of the things that you threw out, and how did you reinvent the process? Well, that whole notion that the solution is the. Um, is squeezing out the poison I threw out. Um, poison the notion, like whatever happened or the thought or the trauma, like that's the poison. That stuff you were describing going through mm -hmm. um, is, is, is part of it. The, the, the business of attempting to improve um, one's life by, um, by, uh, self-analysis, introspection, figuring oneself out, getting somebody else to help you figure yourself out. Um, so uh, that I then realized wasn't wasn't so useful either. Um, and I, I guess I, I just started throwing things into reverse to see what would happen there. And I put a lot of things in reverse. And one of the things that, that reversed is I found that the way that that people in the mental health industry um, 
were prone to tell their patients' clients that that individual they were seeing was really had the responsibility for getting better. And, and that um, I was there to encourage or support or provide the supposed safe place for people to be doing their own work and, and getting better. And I thought, I woke up to that, that I thought that was ridiculous. And I said, well, no, if, if somebody's coming to me and looking to have their life improve, um, it's up to me to get that person better, not up to me to tell her it's up to her. Because if she knew how to do it, she probably would have done it already. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the, the, and no other profession that I know of tells the person who's coming in for the service that it's their job to get it for themselves. Um, they take responsibility and do it. I've yet to hear somebody from the mental health industry, other than people that I trained, tell me that the reason they weren't effective was because they didn't have the skill. So if somebody's, I mean, even if somebody's talking about, you know, and they want to talk and make a talk about their patient and make a referral and what have you, and I'll hear, well, she wasn't ready for change or she didn't understand this modality or there were, or she was resistant or what have you. I'm waiting for somebody to say, yeah, she didn't get better because I, I, I didn't have the skill to get her better. But I can tell you for sure, there are people I do not have the skill to get better. And if I meet with somebody and they don't experience a, a radical and a lasting improvement, it means to me that I didn't have the skill to cause it, not that they somehow didn't work hard enough. So you believe that with the right level of skill, you can affect lasting and positive change pretty much in... in, in I don't know what right level is, but I but, believe that yeah. if I'm not getting somebody better, then I didn't have the skill to do it. Right. And I aspire to continue to acquire skill. And I believe I, I, I do. I, I I don't feel like okay I've, I've I've got this and just where I want it. Um, so the community of people that train with me um, also continue to look to uh, uh, get get clearer and better and more skilled and have more ability to get more done more quickly, but to 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 really make make a difference. Um, and when we're not able to, the, the thing is, well, I wasn't able to, uh, you know, I don't have the key for every lock. And um, I uh, see you as finding somebody that has the skill that I lacked here, mm. rather than, well, you didn't really want to change. You just wanted to come around, hang out with me and give me money. Mm. Do you so, think that, do you feel like on some level, though, that the person that's coming to you has to have a willingness to to want to change, because I, no. I would imagine in some situations there are people. No, that I don't. There will. I don't think a person has to have a willingness to want to change. What do you no. think you need to have in order to be successful with 
RRT? There has to be a willingness to connect with me. And that's your job. You know, I don't, I don't go around to bars and try to convince people they shouldn't be alcoholics. Maybe that's uh, a new business model. <laughs> well, I, I knew somebody that, that they were filling up treatment centers in Florida by doing things that were uh, pretty much like that. Yeah. Um, come on, I'll buy you a drink. Just hop in the van. No, I don't do that. I, I need enough willingness to, to have the meeting occur. Okay. But after that, I don't think it's my job to say, well, he wasn't motivated. Right. I think it would be my job to cause motivation. I don't think motivation is something, you know, you hear about that, like some people have motivation, but she doesn't have motivation, but this person does have motivation. I, From what I understand, they've done thousands of autopsies and never found any of it. So what is motivation? Well, or what causes in my world, if I can shift the mind so that things show up that would be good to have done and possible to do, and then if mind attaches interest and appeal, that will cause the doing of it. Then I'd like mind to attach satisfaction to the completing of it, and then show what is next, what else here would be. Um, and, and that can break down a little further. So there, there are those things that I would like you doing, because I would think they're revitalizing and good for your health and well-being. So if I said, what are you doing this afternoon? And you said, going to my garden to uh, hear the wind chimes, and and uh, observe butterflies, and I'd say, yeah, that's that that that's good. Um, or you know, I'm going to have an interview with somebody and make a difference in people's lives. That's good. So, I, but if your mind is bringing to your attention something that will be good to have done, and you see it as possible to do. And then mind adds appeal and interest, you begin doing it. And then as you're doing it, mind adds pleasure. And then as you're doing it, mind adds satisfaction. Then you're doing stuff and we don't need to have you have motivation. It's not a thing, but it's dealt with as a thing. This is an unmotivated student, but this is a very motivated student. You'll do well with the motivated student, but this one lacks motivation. It, it's, it's not a thing. It's something that goes on. And what um, I believe is you don't say, well, I couldn't get her better because she was, wasn't motivated. You cause motivation. Yeah. And how do you cause motivation? Well, well, I, I wouldn't think you cause it by doing it the way the educational system in this country does it. Look at that system. That's vying with mental health and criminal justice for as dysfunctional as you can find. Um, and, and, and what do they do? They say, here's a guy who has something to teach, and we will 
reward people who learn it and punish people who don't, rather than get this guy to be more interesting. Mm. Yes. So I, I would like to see people go to a school where the teachers are are thinking that it's their job to inspire and interest and motivate rather than, well, she's motivated for me to give her a B plus instead of a C minus. And she'll show up every time anyway, because if not, we'll, um, we'll give her detention. And if that doesn't work, we'll put her in some kind of kitty jail. Um, so it's interesting. I didn't even consider get, getting into talking much about the educational system with you, but your your questions are so wonderful and making me think about this whole issue of motivation and and how those of us who are in a in in that position where it's our responsibility to cause things to shift educationally or or in a mental health counseling or coaching way. Um, um, let's figure out how to cause this thing we like called motivation, rather than simply say, well, it's too bad she didn't have it. What do you expect me to do? Mm. We hear this a lot with um, really gifted students that are not challenged in school where they're bored and they're not paying attention. Like they're they're not doing well on tests because they're just they're they don't care because I think to your point they're not being they're not stimulated in a way that feels like exciting for them or challenging enough right there is no real pleasure in it or desire to even want to do it right and so yeah you have this like full spectrum it's such an like I love this analogy this parallel that you're making between the world of therapy and the therapist saying, well, it's the patient's fault. Like they weren't trying. Motivated. And then the child from a teacher's perspective, like the student just wasn't applying themselves or they weren't motivated or they weren't paying attention or, you know, and so the, the responsibility falls on not the person who's delivering the actual teaching. It's how the person's receiving it. And I mean, isn't that also, the foundation of effective communication is is knowing your audience and being able like if if we're well, in if you take responsibility right? for it like you are now as you say that yeah but i guess not for everybody the thing one of the things i i that i just realized when you were talking about the school thing that that i think is so strange is that okay so there's this single mother and she's doing her best to support herself and 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 these kids, and she gets the kid. And the kid goes to school, and then in the school, there's the school principal, the assistant principal, the psychologist, the social workers, the guidance counselors, and all the people with advanced degrees in education. They call the mother and say, "Miss Johnson." Little Bobby was smoking in the bathroom today. Little Bobby didn't prepare for his biology test. I would say to her, call the principal of the school the next day and say, little Bobby didn't do the dishes last night. <laughs> Why don't you figure that out? 
with your whole staff of figure out people instead of telling me that he's not behaving when he's in your freaking factory. Um, that would make more sense to me if the mother was calling the principal up yelling at him and saying, my kid didn't do what I told him last night. Fix it tomorrow in school. But everything seems backwards from that, don't you think? Very much so. And I can see how the work that you're doing permeates not only the one-to-one -one relationship of like, I'm just, I'm using air quotes of like patient versus practitioner, but also in education settings, because what I'm hearing you say is, is a large majority of what rapid resolution therapy is, is communication style. Well, it, yeah, it's certain concepts and ways of thinking, and then we have to um, get them across. And, and I have these people, and, and it's, I mean, it's really different. It's really, really like what I just said is really different about what different look at the educational system. So when I have a, a new students and they're starting out with me and they want to do well, they're frequently nervous that they won't get it or they won't fully get it or they won't do as well as they like. And one of the things I look to assure people with very close to the beginning is you learning this stuff isn't your job. You learning it is my job. You don't even know it. If you don't know it, how the heck are you supposed to learn it? I know it. So I think it's my job to teach it. And so if you find yourself confused, raise your hand and let me know I'm not doing a good job. I mean, you don't have to say, hey, John, you suck. But you could say, I, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> what you're saying doesn't make sense. And then give me a chance to make it make sense. I love that you said raise your hand, because what, what that brought up for me is the number one fear that most people have, which is public speaking and being seen. And I would imagine a lot of that starts from a young age of raising your hand in a classroom, asking a question that is perceived to be silly by other students and then being shamed for it. And now you carry that fear of being seen. So can you talk a little bit about? Oh, a lot about it. Yes, a lot about it. Yeah. Can uh, you talk Talk about what is like a a rational fear and an irrational fear, or if you would even categorize them that way. And how can what 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 are some tools? Or I, I want to go back to what you mentioned a moment ago in terms of that fear of public speaking, and and it, it's so interesting that that when they do these like surveys of rate your fears and they list them all, that ends up at the top, you know. Uh, under that is being tortured to death or, or something. Public speaking was at the top. I did years and years ago, before I knew what the hell I was doing, I taught a, cl a class on that. I, I thought that would be fun to bring people into. Uh, so I made up this class called Speakeasy or something. And I'd never done it before. And, and I like to do things kind of radically different. And I, we have a oh, I don't know, 35 people in this room, all of whom are there because they have a fear of public speaking. And I like to be friendly and start out and said, so um, how many of you are here because of a fear of public speaking? And they all raise their hand. And I said, well, 
you know, one of the problems you have is you don't even know what the hell you're afraid of. And so how could you ever get better? Which was offensive, don't you think? And then I said, so here's how we're going to start. I'm going to ask you to stand up, get out of your seat, walk up to the front of the room and stand there and don't say a word, just look at people and then sit down and the next person gets up. So this is like going on for, for quite a while. You got to get through all these people getting up, looking at the room, going back down. And Melissa, the tension in the room is like heavier than pea soup. I mean, you could, it just got worse and worse and worse. And if you're in a room with people who are all like terrified, it's catching, you know, I, my, my heart's racing in there and people are standing up and, and, and looking at me with this hatred in front of the room and they do the thing. And finally, we're all done. Everybody's sitting down. And I said, well, so how was that? And this guy raises his hand and says, oh, it was absolutely awful. And I was called on first. And I have to get up there before anybody else and do this whole thing. It just was terrible. And this other guy says, oh, I'm so sorry for you. You got it done first. I had to wait and wait and wait with the tension built and built and built. You don't know what it's like to be afraid. And then somebody else says, and what the hell kind of way is this to teach anyway? And then somebody else says, and who are you? Come in here and tell me, you know, I don't even know what I'm afraid of. What's that about? And they're yelling back and forth and yelling at me and what have you. And I said, well, apparently you guys don't have any fear of public speaking. But all of you seem to have a very strong fear of public not speaking. <laughs> Because all I had you do is publicly not speak. And that's what caused all this terror. So now you at least know what the hell you've been afraid of. And maybe we could roll up our sleeves and get something done about this. So that was, I haven't thought of that in years, but that, that was a fun class to speak. Um, so if there's a drinking glass, imagine a drinking glass, Melissa, that's six feet tall. Got it? Glass, six foot tall. Now we're going to take bright red sand, pour it into the glass, and it's filled up six inches of the glass. See it? Okay. Let's put one foot of green sand on top of it. Picture it. What, what color is it at the bottom? Red. Okay. Well, let's add more green then. How about another foot of green sand? Now, what color is it at the bottom? Red. Yeah. And that's what happens with learning. So people learn something here, and then they learn something different here, which is opposite of this, and invalidates this. So now they don't know this. No, unfortunately, now they know this and this. Because what what I'm what I'm looking to illustrate with that silly thing with the glass and the sand is once the learning comes in, 
it doesn't go away just by putting the opposite learning in. I bet you hear people say things like, well, part of me wants to really look at this, but another part of me is afraid to. And then there's the part of me that wants to vacation at the beach. <laughs> and the other part, what's going on? Well, different learnings at different times now are causing people to think that they're all sliced into parts. Um, and gosh, when you go into lots of counseling situations, they do everything to reinforce and reaffirm that. So people find out they got even more parts than they thought. Um, We're all walking around with multiple personalities, right? Feeling very fragmented. Well, kind of, yeah. Like that can be the place, the seat of confusion, right? Is that you have all these different parts with opinions that are talking. Yeah, I think a lot of that stuff gives... It was given birth in therapeutic relationships. Little baby Robin, little baby Billy, both can get killed. Baby Robin, mommy Robin just has to peck him a few times. Baby Billy, well, you know, that soft spot, they can both be killed by their mothers. Easy. But, but mommy Robin doesn't have to peck him. All she has to do is fly away. Baby Billy's mother only has to take him on a picnic and leave him there where nobody finds him. So when we were little, rejection was fatal. Like abandonment and rejection. Yeah. And and the word abandonment, when you apply it to a puppy or a child, makes some sense. You know? What is the criminal charge? She abandoned him. What do you mean? Well, six months old and took him in the woods and left him in the snow. That's abandoning him. It's also rejection. But how often do you hear men and women say to you, my, my lover abandoned me? I mean, like, what are you, two? Um, anyway, um, why would that still feel like that? And you watch people go through breakups with this incredible agony. Um, to um, coming from emotions because mind is still operating from what it learned here, which is if you ain't getting loved, you're dead. And so mind is causing all these crazy emotions, terrible emotions, to try to get him to do something to go get loved again. Of course, it makes him totally unlovable. Um, and it, it spirals in the wrong way. We can fix that stuff. And we can fix it quickly, but it doesn't get fixed because you sit there and try to figure yourself out with somebody who's doing the same thing with you. And it doesn't get fixed because you've learned to keep track of your thoughts and put them on a chart. And there are all these people who have all these great, too much thinking. They overthink, they overthink, they go to a therapist and the therapist says, okay, let's chart out your thoughts. I mean, ah! <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? We're charting my thoughts. What do you want? <laughs> I'm not thinking that's a solution, but I think there's a way to get to where mind is thinking that um, that you can be abandoned 
you can't get abandoned. Somebody could say to you, you know what? Come to think of it, you're boring. I'm done with you. Somebody could do that to me. If you did that, if you said, this is really the worst conversation I've had, John, and I'm going to throw it in the trash and I'm done with you. And you push the button and execute me on Zoom, I'm dead. And you know what? I'm going to feel bad. I mean, later I'll be thinking, damn, you know, everybody likes her and she hates me. What did I do? What did I do? But you know what, Melissa? I am not going to be dead or thinking that I'm going to be dead. And my intention is not to feel like I'm going to be dead, but to feel like, whoa, that was sort of an oil and water situation. She's smart, she's attractive, and she thinks I suck. Oh, well. So what does that have to do with what we're talking about, which is fear of public speaking? If rejection is experienced as probably fatal, now I have the opportunity to be rejected by 45 people at once. <laughs> so that's terrifying if this thing doesn't get straightened out in the wiring. It's, it's terrifying. And it's not only showing up in fear of public speaking, but bring it down. And, and you have salespeople that livelihood depends on the ability to do uh, effective reaching out, what they call cold calling. And I find when I do training for salespeople, good ones, that fear is often still there. And they find some way to avoid that situation because it's uncomfortable. So it's crippling professionally. And it ain't so good socially. Gosh, I feel lonely. Well, John, do you see her? Don't you think she's attractive? Why don't you go say hello? Oh, I don't think so. What do you mean? Well, I don't want to leave you to go say, come on, I'm your buddy. Go say hello. It's okay. No, no, she has a right to not be annoyed. What? You know, I mean, she's sitting there. She probably gets hit on a lot. It's just fair, unfair. It's wrong. She didn't invite me over whatever, go annoy her, say hello, at least, if she says, get out of here, leave. Well, yeah, but I don't think I'd actually like her after I got to know her. <laughs> what? Yeah, I mean, look at the way she's just sitting there and everything. Probably I wouldn't. Mind is coming up with all kinds of rational things to try to protect me from going over there and facing what it is thinking has something to do with I'd be about to die, rejection, because that earlier thing is, is yeah. still going. So one of the things I'm really excited to do with people is destroy the remnants of this social anxiety, fear of public speaking, fear of making a sales presentation, fear of going over and, and, and starting a conversation. I've been dealing with, with, with groups of women lately, Melissa, we have been doing this, this thing called saying goodbye to bad boys for good. I was in uh, that with you. And, um, I'm talking to really bright gals. I mean, really bright gals. 
um, saying things like, well, you know, I mean, it's nerve wracking, but I just try to be as attractive as possible so that, you know, the right guy will approach me. Sweetheart, if he approaches you, he's the wrong guy. <laughs> you want a guy who'd be too damn scared to approach you. <laughs> uh, uh, I feel like uh, we need a whole another podcast episode just to go into that. We could go a whole other yeah, we're gonna have to hour have just that. on yeah. bad boys. Thank you so much for living your boldly courageous life with me today. I am beyond grateful for you and this amazing community we are building together. It's truly my mission to get this message out into the world and empower others to step fully into the life they've always dreamed of. I would be so incredibly grateful if you would join me in this mission by sharing this episode with your friends and heading over to iTunes to leave me a five-star review. And until the next episode, remember to live your boldly courageous life. Bye.